while people readjust themselves in their seats and get themselves comfortable, um, I, I always like to have a little bit of time in between from when we sit together to when we have a more formal teaching without taking an actual break. So for those of us who don't need to get up and go out, do you have any questions about the meditation at all or any things that you notice that you'd like to remark on or ask about? Marty. Um, I, I feel a lot of presence. Um, <coughs> I also um, find my mind um, thinking or doing whatever it does. Um, and I, I mean, I know it's not a matter of trying to stop that. As a matter of fact, I feel that the thoughts that come when I, I'm feeling presence, it's like one moment I notice a breath and the next moment I'm uh, wishing my son and daughter-in-law well and then another breath and, and then something else. And I, but I, I'm, so I'm just interested in how to, um, you know, what, how to look at that for you know, that, that particular question about what's really the point of what, what kind of a mind are we, are we hoping to develop as we sit here and practice, particularly with that instruction of bring the attention to the breath. Suppose the attention doesn't stay with the breath. It's with this and with this and with this and with this. So I really, I, I welcome the question because my own conviction is that we bring the attention to the breath as a training device to just see that we actually can move the attention from this to this to this to this volitionally so that, oh, particularly, first of all, because it calms down the mind to stay focused for a while. Just the general level of chatter and confusion gets less. But also in times of difficulty or times of startle, if my mind starts to uh, go down a path my attention starts to go down a path that's not so wholesome. It's very easy for me these days to be, uh, oh, get in my car, and maybe I'm checking the traffic or something or other on the car, and there's a political announcement that is so outrageously <laughs> dishonest that I feel that smoke is coming out of my ears, you know. <laughs> and to, to really start to think about those people, and you make them enemies, and to realize this is not a wholesome place for my mind to go. It doesn't do any good, doesn't fix the situation, it's not good for my blood pressure or anything else. And the ability to take the attention and say, don't go there. Let's go over here and make prayers for all the people working in precincts and all the people in phone banks and all the people in hospitals taking care of patients. That there's a, if my, so that in the, in the specific, um, instance of my attention being focused on something that's uh, uh, in the Buddhist lexicon you'd call it an unwholesome thought it's leading to no place good you can take it and put it somewhere else so for that reason it's nice to exercise the mind in the gym of pay attention to the breath it's called malleability of the mind you can just take this and say no I'm not going there I'm going to go to this instead just say no to a to a uh, to a, uh, a rising mind state that doesn't look so good. Because they're very um, uh, seductive because they're so energetic. You're wrong, that's wrong. But, uh, but the other point, Marty, of what should the mind be like? Should we always be with the breath? I actually think that the being with the breath is in order to wake it up so we can see what we're being with. And then... Really, in life, I don't go around monitoring my breath or making phrases of blessing all day long. What I'd like to see is when my attention is held captive by something. Here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought. What will I make for dinner? Those folks are coming over. Okay, I love them a lot. I'll stop by the grocery. Oh, the traffic is bad. Okay, 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 okay. Going, 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 going. There's that ad. Er. I have to write, as soon as the election is over, I'm going to write to the congressperson and say, duh, 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 and start to go, and I say, wait a minute, there, I don't have to go. 
see you, that in um, in medit- in uh, discussing meditations, there are meditations that are called directed meditations, like focus, putting your breath on something, and then there's a thing called choiceless awareness. Choiceless awareness is the awareness rests with what comes up. Here's a thought. Oh, look at that person. They you know they look cold. I hope they you know. They can bundle up, or look at that, or look at that, or look at that, which is an interest and a, a, the kind of investigative, soft, um, engaged interest with the world out there, or even the world in here, where the attention isn't caught. I think the essential thing when we talk about suffering in the mind is the mind caught on something that it can't put down, like a, like a dog with a bone. And that's actually what is painful in the mind. It is absolutely that tension in the mind that the Buddha named as suffering. So to be able to sit here for a half hour and think about this and that and this and that. Do you know what this new baby's name is going to be? Stella. Stella. She's a girl. Named after her great-grandma who's still alive. Ah, is that good? So is the great-grandmother aware of this is happening today? I'm not sure. She's down in Brazil. Ah, but I mean that you think about that. I want. I wanted to also check out with you, apropos of watching how the mind quivers with compassion and leaps up with delight when we hear. You know, th- those are two uh, phrases from Brahma Vihara teaching. Quivers with compassion is a direct uh, is a direct phrase. It doesn't say leaps up, but uh, uh, it, it says the heart quivers when it uh, encounters suffering either directly with our own eyes or our own being or that we hear about it. Somebody mentions something happening to somebody, someone long dealing with some illness or something, and you don't know the person who said it, you don't actually know the person who's got it, but you feel in you, ah. Don't you feel it in you? That, I mean, I think that uh, just it's such an, a stunning example to me of the human capacity to have empathic feelings about other people's stuff, not our own. It's, that's one of the reasons that I have tremendous hope that this humanity can actually pull itself up and save itself and save the planet because we actually care about other people feeling difficulty and we wish they were better. Spontaneously, and then as we listen and you hear about this struggle and this struggle and this struggle, you feel your heart and then you hear something like, to the waiting today for my granddaughter, my second grandchild to get born sometime today. Don't you feel like, ah, like it lifts up the mind a little bit, like a pick-me-up. You say something good is happening in the world. A lot of good is happening in the world. I think that's another reason for keeping the attention so that it's not stuck only in calamities and not only focused on what's not right, but focused also on, first of all, what's right and also what's... Um, Wonderful in the sense of filled with wonder. Here's this new baby getting born. Maybe she'll look like her great-grandmother Stella. Maybe she won't. But, you know, as you sit here, and all this, we don't know if Stella's in or out so far. She might have already been born. And when you talk to them later, you can say that 60 or so people together, we're going to do this right now, 60 or so people thought a great wish for Stella. Let's think a great wish for Stella. Ding. Somewhere. It'd be great. Listen, it's five after ten. You check later. See what was happening in five of If she popped out that minute, yeah. that'd be great. <laughs> and somebody's getting married this weekend. Who's getting married? The two of you. Who? You're getting married. To whom are you getting married? My partner of 21 years. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yay. Good. You know, getting married is a very hopeful thing to do, you know? Really, I mean, you don't have to these days. 
So the reason I'm making that point of why more, it seems to me I mean it when I say I don't know of a, of a thing that I could say now. I have all kinds of remarks to make and Dharma to teach. But I honestly think that that five or ten minutes is the best Dharma in the morning that what, what I get to hear every week, first of all, it calms me down. Always calms me down. I think that, in, not that I'm agitated, but I think to myself, wow, look what's going on in the world. So many people dealing with so many things, and all of us as well. Everybody here, if we would have said it's a requisite that you mention someone, we would have all had somebody to mention, so near or far or whatever. And we all got up this morning, and we put on our shoes and socks, and we came here. So that's number one lesson, that people uh, can get up with. It it doesn't have to be perfect to get up and keep going. As a matter of fact, we're amazing in the sense of we keep going in spite of the fact that it's difficult. It's difficult. When the Buddha said that life is difficult, they were all so depressing. But it's not depressing. It's challenging for everybody. And we still get up, and we still hope to have the best day possible under the circumstances. seems to me, actually, that that is the first noble truth, and the second noble truth is the, the mind that um, doesn't get stuck in insisting that it be otherwise, which is different from doesn't give up on hoping if it could be otherwise to be otherwise, but not insisting the people that we mentioned that are in the last pieces of their life. I find actually, the more and more I'm with people at the end of my life, that there's not so much struggle. That When they're very clear that this is what's happening, people's minds get very clear. This is what's happening. Remember who they love. They remember what's important. So what I wanted to talk about, let me see if I find all the right papers here. Here we go. Some of the right papers. Let me find some more of them. <laughs> I really wanted to talk about hope and faith. Um And somehow connected me, because Donald was talking about fear last week, and he'll be back next week. It's like, now we'll have enough week, and (laughs) Donald will be back. He said, I want to continue on fear. But I think it's important to talk about fear, because I think that fear comes out of um, a confusion about what should I do and a startle. And fear is an agitated mind and body. It happens to everybody. And if what we're talking about is recognizing that there are things that happen that startle the mind and the body and make us frightened. Everybody, a lot of people that I'm meeting these days are saying, I wish it were Tuesday already. Let it only be Tuesday already. I'm so nervous about it being Tuesday. This could be wrong. That could be wrong. But maybe it won't be wrong, you know. And Tuesday will come when Tuesday comes. And um, I also wanted to talk, because we've been, we started this year at least when I came back after this long time. I'll be here now through November up to the, up to Thanksgiving. And I, I, I've been saying I wanted to revisit basic Buddhism, what the Buddha taught 101, and talk about really um, the, the fundamentals of Buddhism, which I've been talking about for 20 years now and thinking about for 30 years, only because I think that there are things... Uh, it remains to me what the Buddha taught tremendously relevant for our times. And sometimes I think we need to discuss some, at least I need to discuss what, what it's written and what it says and how we can interpret that in the 21st century so that it's a living dharma for us. And uh, I remember when I was here two weeks ago and I read you a tractate. Uh, do you remember that? A tractate on abortion. <laughs> And it was like so, so people got so, uh, you know, um, excited about talking about it because uh, it was a, a written by a monk, uh, written by a monk who's a Westerner and a young person, reasonably young, much younger than I, who grew up in this culture, who interpreted the, who interprets in that tractate the, um, 
the decision to have an abortion in a very uh, particular uh, uh, way uh, that the injunction against killing living beings. Actually, it's sometimes uh, translated as I undertake the vow to abstain from killing living beings and sometimes harming living beings. And sometimes you think about whether, and people voiced the last time, maybe it's not harming them. Maybe it's really ending suffering for a, a, a living being that if it were born would be terribly handicapped or terribly um, incapacitated if, if it were to bring some terrible suffering to its parent or parents. So we talked about thinking about the letter of what's written and how we interpret that for our time. And I'm trying, and it's it, my, one of my things that I take on by myself for myself is on the one hand not to be an interpreter for good and all about what did the Buddha really mean because someone else might have a different interpretation, but to actually tell you some of my interpretations, not because I think they're right, but because I think that to have a living practice, it's up for us to really interpret it all for ourselves, not to... not not to disregard it, but to say, what should I take of this that that really resonates with me so I can live it? I, I use as my text for that the Kalama Sutta, which I think I said two times ago, where the Buddha came to the people of Kalama and said, uh, don't believe anything that anybody tells you. Don't believe them if they're a revered teacher or they're a friend of a friend or you think that they're, well, they're a noble person. Don't believe them. Unless you listen to them, you really take in what they say, you try to live that way, and you see if that works for you, if it improves your life. That makes so much sense to me, because I'd like to believe that he said that, and that makes so much sense to me, because what he seems to be saying is you can practice this and see if it works for you, you, which is not a dogma, this is what you should do or this is what you shouldn't do. But this is how you can clear your mind and see if clearing your mind doesn't make you more comfortable in your life, doesn't cause you to make decisions that are more in keeping with your good essence. I mean, the Buddha did have the sense that fundamentally our essence was pure and benevolent. But try this. See if you can do this practice of not only meditation, but this practice of living ethically. I also discover, and that's another reason why I want to start with this, and I said so last time, that I really want to talk about ethics a lot uh, today and as we go along, because um, I think in the West, uh, I'm sure in the, in the West, that when people who are still getting used to the idea of Buddhism as a religion hear that somebody is a Buddhist, they assume, and often if they are people who have not been born Buddhists, they assume that they meditate. And the assumption is made that Buddhism requires meditation and that all Buddhists meditate. But that's completely not true, that in Asia, the practice of Buddhism in the largest part of the Buddhist population is the practice of ethicality, morality, uh, taking care of one's family, doing good works, generosity, that um, word that Ruth said, the word dana, which means generosity in Pali, means the practice of generosity, which doesn't only mean giving money to people, but it means giving time, giving effort, taking care of people, not being self-centered. And the idea is not that you get um, like uh, uh, merit points for, oh good, you weren't self-centered, but the you know, like... But the the idea that not being self-centered is the uh, the key to the end of suffering. When we're self-centered, we're preoccupied with our own story. It limits our attention. And sometimes we feel great because what's going with us is great. And most of the time, we feel mixed. And, and if we're only in ourselves, it's a limited um, it's a limited preoccupation. And on the other hand, if we are more tuned into taking care of the whole world, making it a better place to be, recognizing suffering in all beings, then it lifts us out of our story. Our story becomes a very little story. My story is one of six billion or more stories currently unfolding on this earth. 
It's like if I had a giant screen television with the ultimate and channel switchers, I could watch six billion movies, and all those movies have he loves me, he loves me not, he does it, he used to love me, I wish he loved me, this happened, this one was in an accident, this one is sick, this one got better. Everybody's got the same movie. I got the job, I lost the job, I have enough, I don't have enough. Everybody's got the same movie and permutations and combinations of the movie. And if I really watched all those movies, I would realize that I'm not alone. They have the same movie that I do, or used to have, or will have at some other time. And it doesn't make anybody's uh, difficult movie if it's in the middle of a hard time. Not a hard time, but it makes it easier to bear. Because I'm not the only one having it. Everybody's having a movie. Who here has nothing in their life that causes them angst? Raise your hand. Or let's do it the other way. Who here has something in their life that causes them angst? Okay. I'm just thinking there's a wonderful line in her political rally yesterday where Barack Obama said, who here uh, earns less than $250,000 a year? Everyone puts it there and said, okay, I'm not going to raise your taxes. <laughs> uh, not so many people earn more than $250,000 a year. So really what I want to talk about some more is the precepts and really not as rules, but as the intention of mind that, uh, that leads people to behave in a way that's uh, um, morally or ethically correct. Last week was a precepts day, so we, we said, I vow to abstain from harming living beings, from being exploitive or abusive, using my speech in an exploitive or abusive way or my sexuality in an exploitive or an abusive way, and I vow to keep my my mind clear. So the fifth of the precepts, by the way, is I vow to abstain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So there's often a discussion. Um, there's no discussion in monastic circles about what that means. If you are a monastic, you do not drink alcohol. That's just one of the things that you do. There's a lot of discussion in Western Buddhist practice about whether that means I am taking a vow not to ever drink a glass of wine or any intoxicant, specifically wine usually, or whether the emphasis is on heedlessness. Like if I, I vow to not use any mind-altering substance to the point of heedlessness, or what's a mind-altering substance, which for some people is chocolate and for other people is coffee, and for other people is uh, too much radio or television. Uh, uh, I've been telling you I took a vow against turning on the television. I'm not doing great on the vow. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. I'm not doing great on the vow. I pass by and I say, oh, it's 3.30. I could just see a little bit. But then I turn it on and I realize I need that vow. I don't watch very long because I can feel that my mind becomes agitated from it. It's a, it's a much more leads to heedlessness than, uh, for, in, for me than what I eat or drink. So I'll leave that one because, you know, what we eat or drink is everybody's personal decision. I'm pretty sure everybody here is interested in not living heedlessly. But I want to talk more about when we don't live heedlessly, when we pay attention, um, what I th I'm going to tell you a story right away that comes from the women's conference. I think what happens is that we are able to uh, realize what is our most clear intention and live according to that intention, and that is the cause of happiness. So that's going to be the, the equation. That So here was the conference last week, by the way. Conference was in uh, the Long Beach Convention Center. It was Wednesday of last week, uh, which is why I wasn't here. It was, uh, it says on the, this is a quote from Maria Shriva, who's the convener of the conference, we hope that the Women's Conference 2008 has inspired you to be who you are and empowered you to go out into the world to make a difference in your own way. 
The power to be an architect of change lives within each and every one of us. It's up to we. We is women empowered. So, um, so it was an incredible day. I was tremendously, um, I was tremendously honored to have a small part in it. I was in a panel on Wednesday with um, Timothy Shriver and um, Sister Joan uh, Chittister, who's an amazing Dominican, uh, uh, Benedictine nun. And um, uh, no, there there was meant to be a Muslim woman who couldn't come at the last minute. And Krista Tibbet, who uh, moderates uh, on faith on NPR, and I had a piece on Tuesday night in the opening night in this grand. Uh, I think you'll appreciate this. It was a huge convention hall, kind of like the Cow Palace, and it was set up. And while all day Wednesday were presentations, so you didn't have time to shop and look at all this stuff in this big convention center full of vendors and stands. But can you imagine a convention center full of vendors and stands and everybody's selling good products for the environment and for clean green. And so there were thousands of people there milling in this convention center looking at all these articles. And while they're milling, uh, there were three stages at some difference distance from each other. It was kind of like a three-ring circus. There was something going on each stage uh, for two hours. Every 20 minutes, there was a new act. And uh, I was the last act on stage number three, and I'm supposed to talk about how to quiet the mind in a noisy world. So that's what it says in here, how to quiet the mind in a noisy world. And so it was funny, because it's like in the middle of the convention center, and they were running a little bit fast because the last people finished early, so I started early. So and, and it was noise all over. So I, you know, encouraged people to sit close so it looked like about like you. And so the first thing I talked about is, you know, how to make your mind quiet in a noisy world. I said, listen, this is a noisy world. Us here, and it's not about having your mind quiet. It's having your mind sweet, having it in a good mood, having it benevolent. So, you know, I had an amplifier about talking loud. And in the middle of my talking, since we had started this presentation early, there's a there's a, a loudspeaker announcement in the whole place. Sylvia Borstein will soon begin a presentation. This is 10 minutes after I started. It was very funny. The whole thing was very funny. But, you know, I had a great time. And the thing is, I did not have people try to meditate. That was ridiculous and under those kind of circumstances. I did say to people, think about what you want most in the world for you and for the world. Make that wish, have that hope. I said, now turn to someone that you don't know, get a partner, and you tell your partner what you wished and the partner will tell you what you wished. And people were so happy to do that. You know, I think that's what people want to say. This is what I'd like. I'd like this in a world. And they want to connect with somebody else. They don't just want to sit. Anyway, that was my whole part. The conference, but it was, I was very, very happy to be there. Uh, I got to meet the only person who I've ever used her name in a sentence that begins, in my next incarnation, I want to come back as Christiane Amanpour. And I got her, and she was, I got to meet her, and she was great. Great. Perfect. And she gave a 45-minute dynamite speech talking about the role of journalism really to alert people to what's going on and how journalists are failing people because they're entertaining them, they're not telling them the news. She was so rousing. I was beside myself. She was terrific. So the piece that I want to get up to telling you really, because that was what reminded me to talk about this. I'll tell you one more little story, then I'm going to tell you the piece, because it's so cute. This is the last great remark of the day. There was a panel. uh, One of the panels was Christiane Amanpour moderating a panel with um, uh, Cecilia Sarkozy, who's the former wife of the current president of France, the person who went... uh, on that hostage crisis and talked to uh, to Libya and, and freed uh, Liberia and got hostages freed. 
uh, Cherie um, uh, Blair, the wife of Tony Blair, talking about her where she's a civil rights lawyer. She's a civil rights lawyer who mostly supported her family while he was building his political career. Um, a woman from, this was a woman from Liberia who was, um, was a tremendous community organizer there and uh, not single-handedly, but was one of the women who caused them to finally have free elections, depose a dictator, and put in the first woman uh, democratically elected president of Liberia. And she did it by organizing women to refuse to have sex with their husband until they changed the government. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. I thought that was it. You get a big round of applause from these whole women. But, you know, it's an old idea, Lysistrata. It's an old Greek play, you know, but it's the same truth. Anyway, on that panel was Madeleine Albright, and who turns out to be very physically small. She's a small woman. And all these other people were kind of big, imposing, young, beautiful women. And here's Madeleine Albright, and her feet don't touch the ground. She's a little woman. And uh, she was brilliant in what she said. And someone said, when you were um, Secretary of State and you went all over the world, you went to many countries where uh, women are not are inferior citizens, where women are not respected, where women have no part in government. Weren't you frightened when you got went there to meet with these heads of state there? She said, no, not at all. She said, you see, when I arrived... I arrived in a very big airplane that said United States of America on the outside. <laughs> it said, and I wasn't afraid of anybody. It was great. It was great. You got a very big applause. The most touching for me story, uh, oh, maybe not the most, but still, Maria Shriver spoke, and she spoke about um, overcoming fear in her own life and different things that, She's been frightened of. She said, I thought I'd gotten over all the fears. I've really worked very hard on myself psychologically. She said, and this year, I had a particular fear I had to overcome. Uh, she said, I had been a supporter of Hillary Clinton because I wanted very much to have a woman president. And, uh, however, even before the primaries were over, I had shifted my ideas and I had decided I wanted to really support Barack Obama because he seemed even more what I wanted to have in a president. And she said, uh, but my husband, Arnold, who uh, is a Republican and he's the governor of the state, so it put me in a very peculiar position. She said, so my cousin Caroline, you know, my cousin Caroline, my cousin Caroline, my cousin Caroline called me and she said, can, can you imagine this? It was, she's saying this to 14,000 women in this huge arena. My cousin Caroline called and she said, listen, I'm going to be in L.A. next week with uh, Oprah and Michelle Obama and we're going to have a big rally for Barack Obama and you're supporting him. Why don't you come and be in the rally with us? And she said, I said, I can't go. I can't do it. You know, I'm just... I'm the first lady of the state. My husband's a Republican. I've got connections. It doesn't look good. It might be upsetting. What about this? In my marriage, it's peculiar. <laughs> she said, so the day came, and it was happening in the afternoon or evening, and she said, I was in, um, I, I was in Southern California. I was in Yucca Valley or somewhere uh, east of um, L.A. She said, and I was hiking with my daughter, Catherine, we're talking about it, and I said, you know, I, I really feel mixed about this because I, you know, but I said I can't do it. I'm too conflicted about it. It just doesn't sit right with me. I'm afraid. I'm really afraid. So she said, so my daughter said to me, well, Mom, isn't that your whole thing? If you're afraid, you're supposed to face the fear and become fearless about it. So she said, so I jumped in my car. I did not change my clothes. I drove to Los Angeles. I came, they're already there at the place. I came in the green room where they're ready to go on. And I said, okay, uh, I'll, I'll be in this with you. I'll go out and I'll, and I'll introduce the three of you. She said, Oprah said, no, you won't. 
She said, uh, we are not the news. You are the news. We'll go out and we'll announce you and you'll come out and you'll be the news and you'll make the news. She said, no, I really can't do that. She said, Oprah said, well, that's what we're doing. And went out and... You know, it's a, like a, like an incredibly folksy story. She's telling to 15,000 people that she doesn't know. You know, sitting there, and they're applauding. They're wild about it. And uh, she said, so I'm standing backstage, and I'm actually shivering. I'm f- so frightened about this, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? Political this and political that, and this and that, and this and that. I was really upset. She said, I had a thousand thoughts in my mind. And then they said, now here she is, Maria Shriver. She said, I walked down stage, and there was a big roar from the crowd. She said, and I was completely fine. Mm-hmm. Said, completely fine. Every thought went out of me that it was the wrong place, the wrong time, what if, what if. She said, I felt such a relief mm-hmm. that I had actually lived consistent with my mm-hmm. truth. And that was the important piece of the day that I took away. I lived consistent with my truth. <coughs> this was my truth, and I was not afraid to go out and say it. She said, immediately... I felt better. And I think that that's really one of the extraordinary things about human beings, that it's not true only of Maria Shriver, that when we live consistent with our truths, any of us, when I do something that's not (coughs) the best that I can do or the best that I know to do, I don't feel good about it. It stays with me. Those things that I have done in my life that really are incorrect, a long time ago, I remember I have like a like a little notebook in my mind. I'm happy to say it's not too many dreadful things, but I think the fact that we have a um, a built-in examination of conscience is an amazing piece of human equipment. There's a whole other discussion about. Some people don't seem to have a built-in. Yeah, with them it's all right to hurt other people. I think when we know more about neurology and we know more about psychology, I think what we already know is that more pe- most people, I think, we would agree, feel good when they help out other people. Most people don't tell lies. Most people behave themselves thinking about other people. I was in a coming out. I was, I flew from there to Denver to Boulder. Anyway, it's been a lot of flying around. And on one day, <coughs> plane was delayed many hours. When we got on the plane, it was very very crowded. You could move around, and everybody had been waiting, and then had moved from this terminal to this terminal to this terminal. Crowds of people, and I looked around at one point, and I thought, you know. People are really incredible. No one, no one, no one makes any mayhem. You could have mayhem. One person could misbehave, and you could have mayhem. And they and they don't do it. They and I think it's on behalf of everybody else that's there. Everybody feels like doing something outrageous. Every once in a while, there's a child who's you know lost it, falls on the floor and kicks and screams and is flailing. And I always look at the child and I think we all of us feel like that. <laughs> fling ourselves on the floor and kick and scream and fly out. But everybody gets on the plane, they sit down, they fasten their seatbelts. amazing that we do it. And we're happy when we land. I think that there's an amazing thing about being a human being and remembering what you're supposed to do. Not even what you're supposed to do, but what you feel like doing. Guided by our own inner intuition. I brought this book the last time, but I don't think... You tell me if I actually did read it to you, but I don't think I did. Because I still have the pages marked. I didn't read to you from The Zookeeper's Wife, did I? No. Zookeeper's Wife. I, the Zookeeper's Wife by Diane Ackerman. Look at all the pages I've got marked. It's a story... Uh, Diane Ackerman did a lot, of, a great deal of research. She's an archivist. She's a good writer and really interviewed all the people still living of, 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 who were living in Warsaw at the 1939-1940 at the time of the German occupation of Poland. 
around who had something to do with this particular story. And there are archives and there are journals and there are photos. And she's put together a narrative of the story of the Warsaw Zoo. So the story of the Warsaw Zoo is uh, a man and his wife, Polish people, not Jews, were the uh, directors of the Warsaw Zoo. And they talk about uh, that the wife particularly was known to have had, uh, uh, to be able to do mind whispering. You know that they talk sometimes about people who have a, a special affinity with animals, that they can be near them and the animal can calm itself down. So she was supposed to be extraordinary with animals and had a great love for them. And uh, they had a lot of exotic animals, and animal, all kinds of animals, a wonderful zoo. They went to zookeepers' conventions over Europe. It was a, very, it was a venerable per- profession being a zookeeper. And uh, when the German army uh, overran Warsaw and uh, actually bombed it first before they entered the city, they bombed indiscriminately and they bombed the zoo. They killed a lot of animals and they destroyed the cages. And so you, you begin by reading this dreadful account of what happens with their whole life work where everything is destroyed purposely. But then the whole rest of the book is how they then pull themselves together, uh, put back the whatever buildings they can, pretend to be uh, raising animals for fur, um, small fur-bearing animals, so that later on when the Gestapo comes through and checks them out, they say, oh, we're working for the Wehrmacht. (coughs) We're cultivating fur here. And for all the years through till the end of the war, uh, were a safe house for Jews, kept really... Hundreds of people stayed for long and short time until they could either get them an escape route or get them fake papers and sometimes lived there for months. And they had people in the attic and people in the basement. And they had a a child who's now an old man, uh, also in the photos, whom they had to teach uh, about who to talk to and who not to talk to because you know the the German occupying forces would come through, and a lot of people they would say, "Oh, this is my aunt, so and so, and this is so and so," who were actually not their family members, actually Jews that they were taking care of, and how this boy had to remember who was who and what you should say what to, and it's actually quite terrifying because it's written extremely well. <coughs> And the reason I, I'm bringing it up is uh, I, I was tremendously moved. A friend of mine told me about it, and I got, got it and read it. And certainly, uh, first of all, I was tremendously moved because it's a moving story. But um, the question came up. It started to come up after the end of World War II. Um, when it became clear, first of all, the magnitude of the numbers of people who had been killed, and also the numbers of people who had been saved. And the people who had been saved uh, reported who the people were who had saved them. And there began to be really studies. People went and interviewed them, and by and large found that they weren't particularly interested in being interviewed. They, they, they more or less said it was no big deal. This person came to my door said, if you don't take me in, I'm going to get killed. And they, you know, they said, I couldn't not take them in. Other people didn't take them in. So it began to be a lot of like, uh, psychological studies about the psychology of compassion. What's the difference between a person who says, look, I can't jeopardize my family, terribly sorry, and the other person who jeopardizes their family and then they say, why did you do that at great jeopardy to your family? And say, I couldn't not. And they want to know, what is the piece in the mind that says, I couldn't not? So there are lots of stories about people who couldn't not. And you know, this is not the first one that I've read. But this was really, this, this particularly struck me because it gives a clue about why you couldn't not that's directly related to what the Buddha would have said about suffering. 
This is, um, so I'll, I'll read you just one page. You want to hear one page? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is talking about, um, wait, 122. Here it is. <coughs> talking about, they have certain friends. Um, they have friends, uh, 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 um, another woman also taking in people, uh, Mrs. Walter. And Mrs. Walter had had, um, also had been uh, sheltering a lot of people. Um, and Mrs. Walter said she had been an instructor. She had run, I guess she'd had either a beauty shop or a charm school. She said she started to have a charm school, quote-unquote, for Jewish women to teach them how they could look not Jewish, that, there was, that, the, that he wouldn't be uh, uh, stopped on the street. Although... He said the uh, women had Semitic features. Each one was given a cross or a medallion around her neck. And Mrs. Walter taught them key Christian prayers and how to behave invisibly in church and at ceremonial events. They learned ways to cook and serve poor, prepare traditional Polish dishes, order the moonshine vodka called bimber. Typically, when the police stopped Jews on the street, they checked the men for circumcision. And they ordered the women to recite the Lord's Prayer and Hail Mary. Can you believe in, in our lifetime? The smallest detail could betray them. So Mrs. Walter ran a kind of charm school, the charm of non-detection, which required just the right blend of fashionable makeup, restrained gestures, Polish folk customs. This meant resisting all Jewish expressions, such as asking, what street are you from, instead of what district are you from? They paid special attention to the habitual and the commonplace, how they walked, gestured, acted in public. Men reminded to take off their hats in church because in a temple you put on a hat. Hair belonged off the forehead, neatly reined in or swept up into more Aryan styles, while bangs, curls, or frizz might raise suspicion. Black hair required bleaching to dull its glitter, but it shouldn't become implausibly pale. Uh, when it came to choosing clothes, Mrs. Walter av- advised, avoid red, yellow, green, or even black. The best color is gray, <laughs> or else a combination of several inconspicuous colors. You must avoid glasses of the shape that's now fashionable because they will emphasize the Semitic features of your nose. And some outstanding Semitic noses required surgical intervention. Fortunately, she worked with Polish surgeons, such as the eminent doctor, and it says the name of this person, who reshaped Jewish noses and operated on Jewish men to restore foreskins, a controversial and clandestine surgery with an ancient tradition. And it goes back to that particular operation being done in Greco-Roman days. Anyway, it said, at the end of this whole long description, it says, in the circles, within circles of underground life, the zookeeper certainly knew the Walters. The bleach and the re- recipe that Antonina, that's the zookeeper's wife, used may have come from the Walters' salon. Mrs. Walter and her elderly husband hid five Jews at a time in their own home and offered um, an endless chain, it says, of people and lessons in good looks throughout the war. In later years, Mrs. Walter wrote that the accidental fact that not one of the causal inhabitants Casual inhabitants of our wartime nest fell victim to disaster. It gave rise to a superstitious legend which continually increased the influx of guests we had. In fact, she explained, her actions were a simple voodoo of compassion, she said. This is the line that I wanted to read to you. She said, suffering took hold of me like a magic spell, abolishing all differences between friends and strangers. Isn't that a marvelous line? I read you that whole thing to be able to read you that line. If you really get it, the suffering that people are experiencing and doing to each other through ignorance, there's nothing, you can't do anything but respond with compassion. Suffering took hold of me like a magic spell, abolishing all differences between friends and strangers. Imagine if we could... um, You know, 
I wonder if this is an incorrect, because I usually try not to make political comments. This is not a political comment. This is a war comment, which I don't think is politically one side or the other. I wonder if on nightly TV, if there were pictures of the destruction in Iraq, homeless children and weeping parents and maimed people and funerals one after another, if the whole United States would not have risen up and say, forget about it, don't start, and having started, finish. I, you know, that suffering would so... I mean, if we knew what we were doing, if we knew what we were doing, I think we don't... a lot of effort to make sure we didn't. Yeah, yeah, but... We couldn't even see the caskets coming off of our soldiers. But if we knew... See, I think that's... that. I think that that's the great hope is that we'll soon start to know. So now I have a thing here that says, read on this page, because it says about hope. Oh, this is one more thing. Do you want to hear one more thing from this book? Later on, um, after the, the Germans are defeated and the Russians arrived, and it's equally bad, uh she said, suddenly, uh, the, the zookeeper's wife says, um, suddenly, uh, a leader, a man, a Russian, uh, a, a Russian soldier uh, bursted in and uh, looked at her in a very terrible way. Said her, she'd had a baby at, at this point. She said, Teresa was sleeping in a nearby cradle, and she, she resolved not to look away or move. Suddenly, he grabbed the small gold medallion she always wore around her neck. Slowly and gently, she pointed to the baby. Then, remembering, defrosting it, says the Russian of her childhood, she said in a loud, stern voice, not aloud, your mother, your wife, your sister. Do you understand? She said that she then put her hand on his shoulder, and he looked surprised. And she saw the manic fury draining from his eyes, his mouth relaxing as if he'd smoothed the fabric of his face with a hot iron. Her mind whispering had worked again, she thought. Next, he placed his hand into the back pocket of his pants, and for a horrible instant, she remembered the German soldier who took out a revolver and shot it at somebody. Instead, he withdrew his hand and opened it to reveal several dirty pink hard candies. For the baby, he said, pointing to the cradle. As Antonino shook his hand in thanks, he smiled at her admiringly and glanced at her ringless hands, then made a pitiful face and took a ring off his own finger and offered it to her. It's for you, he said. Take it. Put it on your finger. She said, my heart shook as I slipped on the ring because it bore a silver eagle, a Polish emblem, which meant he probably ripped it off the finger of a dead Polish soldier. Whose ring was it, I wondered. Then, loudly summoning his soldiers, who had also entered his house, he ordered, leave everything you took. I will kill you like dogs if you don't obey me. Surprised, his men dropped all the furniture and loot they gathered and dragged small items out of their pockets. Let's go now, don't touch anything, he said. And with that, she watched his men shrink in size as they left one at a time, like muzzled dogs. When they'd left, she sat down at the table and looked again at the ring with the silver eagle and thought, if felt felt words like mother, wife, sister have the power to change a bastard's spirit and conquer his murderous instincts, maybe there's some hope for the future of humanity after all. So I wanted to read that to you about hope, but also... Imagine, you know, you get somebody in a rage and you say to them, your mother, your sister, your wife. All of a sudden, ah. You know, that it's a very compassionate story to put in there because it, for me, anyway, not for you, because it, it really points back to the fact that people get crazed but they're just crazed if you can uncraze them for a minute by somehow touching them where they are inside of them. Then they stop. And they say, okay, I'm out of here. You know, it, it, just to say, 
You have a mother. You have a wife. You have a sister. Somehow, what does that mean to you, that line? Is that a good line? What does it mean? What do you think? The connection. I'm like them. I'm like them. Here she is with her baby in a cradle. Your mother, your wife, your sister. Hmm? Yeah. In this work that I do, we have um, children cross over a line for different categories of oppression. And we have the girls cross over the line when it's in high school. And we have them cross if they've ever been whistled at, catcalled, all these things. And if they stand on that line in their vulnerability, I ask the young men to look into their eyes and imagine that any one of these women could be their mother or sister or daughter for the adult men. And there's a way of just personalizing the things that may happen normally in life and beginning to see that anyone, like it's almost like all my relations, like they say in Native American, like we're all, we're all the same. Mm -hmm. Where do you do that work? Very wonderful work. My father-in-law uh, was born in uh, Ukraine in uh, 1906. And uh, during the First World War, the German occupying forces came through his town. And uh, they, uh, uh, they uh, took control of the town and they bivouacked uh, the soldiers in the homes of the people who lived in the town. They just uh, obligated everybody to take three or four soldiers and put them on their floor of their house, however minimal it may have been, and to feed them until the army moved on. And my father-in-law told me that... um, when he was telling me that about, he was telling me that they had one bed and he slept with his four brothers in that one bed, but they didn't sleep this way, they slept that way because then they could fit the four of them in that way. So then he told me the story about the German occupying soldiers coming through and uh, that his mother fed them and took care of them. I said, how did your mother, you know, was your mother all right with taking care of them? And she said, and he said, oh yeah, she said, they are some mother's child. Mm. I, I, I thought to myself, I never met my father-in-law's mother, but I, that's the same thing. There's some mother's child. There's some mother's child. By no fault of their own, they're here in my house, on my floor, sharing my food. But there's some mother's child. It actually points, I think, to the fundamental decency of human beings. Yeah. Yes question about what that means reminded me of a book I'm reading called uh, Measuring the Immeasurable. And in it, there's a story of some of the research that's been done with small infants, that they will cry when another baby is crying. Mm -hmm. But when you play their own crying back to them, they don't cry. They recognize that this is someone like them in trouble. Uh-huh. And it's, it's such a touching story, and it goes back to the basics of where compassion mm-hmm. exists. <laughs> what else do you want to say? I could talk more, but... I want to share a story. Go ahead, tell a story. Because you said, um, can you imagine this in our lifetime? It made me think of... Okay. <clears throat> when Sylvia said, can you imagine this, they're stopping men and women on the street in our lifetime, it made me think of my dad, who is a Russian and Polish Jew and has dark skin and a beard and dark hair. And um, the Christmas after 9-11, so of 2001, my dad travels on Christmas Day because the airplane flights are less expensive and we don't celebrate Christmas, so it's a good time. And... Uh, the soldiers in the airport stopped him. He he looks like he's from somewhere else. You, you can never quite tell where he looks like he's from. And said, uh, why are you traveling on this day? I'm going to visit, you know, my friends that I do every year. And uh, what are your, what's your family of origin? He explained. And then they asked him, 
they you know pat him down everything they asked him sing jingle bells mm -hmm. so he's standing in the airport singing jingle bells you know and it's so it's unbelievable in our lifetime it is unbelievable that in this our is life. happening in this airport Three years ago yeah wow and just you know my father just they thought he was a Muslim man and going to cause trouble, and, you know, it's just unbelievable. Huh. Which airport? Mm -hmm. Well, he lives in Boston. He's traveling to Florida. He does this every year, so mm -hmm. in the Boston airport on his way to Florida. Oh. This is incredible in our time. You know, it's like, it's like not, not almost unbelievable. It's unbelievable, you know. There's so much fear. It's so, it's, it's, and it's so much fear on everybody's <coughs> part. Um, you know, and uh, so many of us have, uh, you know, our first-generation Americans. My, my my father was born in Poland. But the people who came here, because you presumably could walk in the street without people asking you who you were and where you came from. I think I... Uh, all right, this is another political thing to say. I hope by next week we will see that we are on the way to having not only a new administration, but maybe a turnaround of consciousness, uh, maybe really a, a beginning of recognizing the, you know, the, really fundamentally the, the premise of democracy, that every person is a valuable person, worthy of dignity. I mean, we are a country of people who founded that country because they thought we, we, we could have a democracy. and came for freedom. Sylvia, hmm. um, earlier you talked about uh, having guilty feelings about transgressions mm -hmm. uh, you felt you had committed. And I, I wonder, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the ability to forgive oneself for those transgressions? Yeah, the question is, what do you do when you come? I, I, it's a, it's a good, it's a very good question. What's your name? Charlie. Charlie. It's a very good question, Charlie, because it's a longer question than I can do in two minutes. So I'm going to start from it honestly next week, because it has to do with when we recognize in ourselves, I made a mistake in some significant way, even that we can say. You know, I, I, my mind wasn't clear. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a full understanding. Had I only been mature enough to understand the implications, I wouldn't have done it. I think still it's painful. I mean, it's not the same. I think what happens for me is maybe the feeling of guilt that is accompanied by shame uh, maybe is a little bit replaced with remorse, which is not which is a little bit different from shame, I think. Remorse was, you know, it really, in the sense of it's not my fault. I could not, having been the person I was at that time, have done differently. That's just what happened. But I'm so sorry that it did. And that, that I don't actually think remorse is such a bad thing to have. I think actually remorse and contrition is really what um, fires up my resolve not to make those kind of mistakes anymore. The, you know, it's, but it's a bigger question than that, Charlie. I, so I hope you'll come back next week. I hope we'll be celebrating next week. I'll tell you what I meant to talk. What, what's next on my list here? Oh, come on my, Sunday night if you're in, if you're in Marin, come to the First Presbyterian Church at seven o'clock. Talk about dignity for and and equal rights for everybody. Um, I think we're having one in Santa Rosa, too. Okay. Uh, but what I was going to talk about next in terms of morality is I'm going to talk about honesty and telling the truth, which has been severely compromised um, in the course of this whole last year or month. Well, years. And I want to really talk about um, both just the the... The on a, on a fundamental personal level, the commitment to honesty and what that means. Maria Shriver's story is a story about honesty. She said, my daughter said to me, hey, you're the person who said you have a fear, you face it. So you got to do, do it. So, oh, you're right. I'm going to go do it. So And she went and did it. So really, really being able to tell ourselves honestly 
this is where I am on this, so this is what I should do. You know, really walking your talk, living your talk, if you know it, not hiding from it. But also, I really am thinking a lot about how, in in a larger sense, can make a difference in in the greater discourse in terms of what becomes acceptable to say. I have a lot of thoughts about, uh, not finished thoughts, so I'm inviting you to think about them. Because uh, I'm I'm dismayed to the smoke coming out of my ears level of listening to palpable lies in political ads. And I think to myself, how can people buy airtime and say complete lies? And people say, well, that's what it is, is you have free speech. You can say whatever you want. But you can't really say whatever you want. You can't say... There are a lot of things that you can't say on public space. So why, you know, how does that work? And um, what do I think about, you know, is it really democratic to let everybody say whatever they feel like? And if you start to say, well, you can't say that, is that censorship? And then what can you not say? Uh, So it's it's not an easy question, but I hope by next Wednesday, smoke will not be coming out of my ears, and I'll be able to talk about it in a clear way. Let's sit 30 seconds together, 30 seconds of sitting. May Stella emerge from the where she's been in a healthy way, and we'll find out next week. That's like those radio programs where they say, tune in next week. <laughs> May she be a great blessing to her parents and her grandparents and her great-grandmother and everyone else that we thought about and prayed for and the people that we didn't think about and prayed for and all of the people really who have so much energy in working for a better world. May they be sustained in these days. And may we be sustained by the thought that people are fundamentally really inclined towards the good and the kind and the companionable. And really, in our deepest hearts, may everyone come to realize that we are happier if the whole world is happier. May all beings be peaceful and happy. May the merit of our practice be offered fully for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.